Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or the text for the sermon is on page 10 in your bulletin. The Apostle Paul is writing, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for the moving of your spirit now, our Father, as we reflect upon this glorious text in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I was still a very young pastor when I, in my ministry, began to feel something I could not quite put my finger on, kind of like you start to feel a pebble in your shoe, and it took me a long time to kind of figure out what it was that was troubling me. What I was encountering on the surface in those early years was this. I would find myself often working with really enthusiastic Christians. These were not sort of fringy types. They were serious churchgoers. They were enthusiastic about the Lord, very earnest Christians, But what's strange is, as I would kind of get into their personal lives and get to know them in their personal lives, I began to notice that there were some very big areas of their personal lives in which Jesus just didn't seem to be a factor at all. It's like somehow in these areas of their personal life, Jesus just didn't play any really meaningful role, let alone the role of Lord as in like he is the master and apprenticeship or discipleship is really happening, being formed under his mastership. That just wasn't happening. Something else, this is what I kept feeling, something else was forming these parts of these personal lives. Something else was kind of shaping their approach often, let's say, to marriage and how marriage is worked out every day. Something else was shaping how they raised their children. Shaping their approach to dating. Their approach to finances and spending. Their honoring or not honoring the Sabbath. Their whole mentality about serving the body of Christ. Sometimes something else was shaping their sexual ethics. Something clearly other than Jesus and the word of God. Something else was shaping their ideas, their beliefs, their opinions on all kinds of things, from politics to philosophical questions, even to theology. 
And I kept wondering, like, what is it? What is it? Because these people love the Lord. And what was strange is that despite years of listening, like you're listening right now, to hopefully really biblical preaching, what I noticed about these parts of these personal lives was those parts of their lives not only were not changed, it didn't even look to me like they, those parts of their life were being disturbed by this preaching. They would just kind of come in, go out, and it, like just nothing, nothing was shaken. And I just kept puzzling over this. And as I began to kind of slowly over time get under the surface, I discovered something that I'm going to call today defaults. You guys know your computer's got a default mode. Well, people are kind of like this in a certain way. What do I mean by defaults? My father taught public school for 39 years, and I'll never forget one day he told the story. In the cafeteria, this child came in from another country, and this child broke open his lunchbox. And he was looking around at the food that these American students in Hammondsport, New York, were eating, and he was absolutely repulsed by what they were eating. And I can tell you that Dad told us the story that when he opened his lunchbox, I mean, the kids sitting around him in the cafeteria just turned green. They were so grossed out, they wouldn't touch that food with a long pole. Because they had their defaults about food, this is what's actually good to eat, and this child from another country had a very different set of defaults, and those kind of defaults are pretty cute when it's kids in a cafeteria. But you guys know well that different defaults can create some really big problems and tensions. I mean, if you're invited to somebody's home, say of a different culture, and they serve you a meal, and you're like, I think this is gross, I'm not going to eat this, that is virtually an act of hostility. That will be the end of that friendship. You've got your defaults, they've got theirs. And these defaults show up all over the place in life, don't they? I mean, for some people, if you're invited to an event, the default is you should be on time. For other people, if you're invited to an event, the default is, you know, that's a suggestion, we get there when we get there. And you will really offend the person who thinks whose default is be on time if you're late. The other person might be offended if you're like snapping your fingers like how come people aren't here? In some homes, if you walk in with your shoes on and start trampling on their f- carpets, you, they are offended because the default is wear shoes off home. Other homes, you, you take your shoes off, they're like, you think you're family? What are you doing? Different defaults. And these are social customs. But you guys understand that defaults run a whole lot deeper than just these social customs. Defaults go all the way down to our very deepest instincts about, for example, what is true and what is false. There have been societies in which the default was, of course the supernatural is real. Of course there's a God. Of course there are gods. Of course there are supernatural beings. Obviously, and there are cultures like our own where the default is, that's nonsense, and you're going to have to mount an enormous amount of proof to ever convince anybody that the supernatural is real because our default is what's real can be run through a laboratory. Or there have been societies where, speaking of true and false, it is the default that authority figures should be trusted. Of course you trust your parents, you trust your priest, you trust, you know, the rulers, you trust the experts. And there are societies like our own where the default is, you got to prove yourself if you're an authority. You, the, the idea that parents, pastors, rulers, experts are trustworthy, the default is suspicion. Defaults get into our deepest instincts about what is good and what is bad. There are people for whom it is the default is that it's obviously good to have more, and it's obviously bad to have less. And there are people for whom the default is exactly the opposite, that it's obviously good to have less, and it's really not that good to have more. 
there are people for whom the default is that really well-adjusted people are independent of other people. And there are people for whom the default is really well-adjusted people are interdependent with other people. Defaults get all the way down into our instincts about what is normal and what is strange. When I was 12 years old, if I had walked into my kitchen and pulled the phone off the wall and walked to the far end that the cord would reach and sat down on the floor and for four hours stared at that phone, occasionally swiping it with my finger, my parents would have called a psychiatrist. And now this seems completely normal, so much so that if you walk into a room and everyone in the entire room is not doing that, you think it's weird. Is there an emergency? Defaults get all the way down into our deepest instincts about who is in and who is out. There are societies where it is a default that those people are the untouchables. I've told you, I think it was a decade ago, I preached a sermon in which I told you, you guys have heard of the 1994 Rwanda genocide, of course, an absolute bloodbath, millions of people dead as a result of that. What many people do not know is that the nation of Uganda in 1994 was 90% Christian. They were an evangelized nation. They had been catechized, and yet when really push came to shove in that nation, it was not the catechism that drove things. It was their defaults about who was in and who was out. The entire phenomenon of being triggered boils down to defaults. Now, where do these come from? Well, defaults sometimes just come from personal temperament. I mean, for some people, just kind of how they're wired, order, the default is that order is comfortable. For other people, the default is that clutter is comfortable. It can just be your temperament. Definitely your time in history. You're 2022 people. That makes your defaults different from 50 years ago. It makes it different from what will be 50 years from now. Your place in the world, the fact that you were born here and not there, your family is almost certainly a huge part of your defaults. How you were formed, the kind of stuff that was kind of ingrained in you, as a child, your repeated experiences in life or the repeated voices that you've listened to in your life create defaults. I mean, there are defaults that are reinforced by CNN and there are defaults that are reinforced by Breitbart. Defaults can arise from just cultural soaking in, what do we, what do we mean by culture? I mean, culture is basically just, they're kind of like basic ways that life around us is imagined and structured and practiced what we call culture, and it seeps into us. And what happens over time is these defaults kind of are formed in us. They start to feel completely normal. They feel right. They feel secure. They feel comfortable, and they become invisible. And it is in the crisis, it is when pressure really mounts in your life, that's when, well, you go to your defaults, like what happened in Rwanda you will revert very quickly when the pressure really heaps upon you. You will revert very quickly to what you really know deep down, what you deeply feel, what you viscerally value. You'll go back to your defaults. And it's a comfort to me that the missionaries and the pastors in the early church felt the same thing that I was feeling. They felt the defaults of people. And at the core of the gospel, the good news that they preached to Jews who had one set of defaults and to Gentiles who had a very different set of defaults, at the core of their message to Jew and Gentile alike was the news that God has reset, if I can put it so clumsily, God has reset all of the defaults. He has taken all the defaults that you have and I have, and he has, as Michael Gorman says, brought them into the gravitational field of the cross of Jesus Christ. God is just moving and shaking in the defaults. 
And as Paul puts it here in our text, what controls us now is what? What controls us now is no longer the defaults from wherever they originated. What controls us now is the love of Christ. And you'll notice it all starts with what Paul calls the reconciliation. The reconciliation. Let's talk about that for a moment. I love the word reconciliation. I love it because even at the human level, reconciliation is a word that just brings relief. It brings a lot of joy. Reconciliation is quarreling lovers reaching out to take each other's hand. Reconciliation is a rebellious, angry child calling you and saying, Mom, Dad, I'd like to come home. Reconciliation is estranged friends sharing a meal and laughter and remembering why they became friends in the first place. Reconciliation is Russia and Ukraine living as neighbors at peace. Reconciliation is an ugly misunderstanding resolving in clarity and affection. That's reconciliation. And Paul says in verse 19, you'll notice, in Christ, God was reconciling. Paul says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we have reached a stunning conclusion. Do you see that? The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded something. We've reached this conclusion. There is an awesome fact to which God's entire revelation leads and draws us. It's the conclusion of everything God has said. And the implications of this conclusion are just incalculable. I mean, this just, it changes everything. It, it unsettles everything. It, it resets everything. And here it is in verse 14. This is the conclusion. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. This is the conclusion. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Now, beloved, you guys know this is not a feeling. One has, one has died for all. That's not a feeling. We are, so, we are so sophomorically controlled by our feelings in the 21st century. This that I'm stating to you, that Paul says is his conclusion, this is not a feeling, and it's not even an idea. For those of us who, you know, a little bit more, you know, want to think we're kind of brainy, this is not just a great philosophical idea. This is something that happened. This is news. One died for all. This is what Paul is saying. I just want you guys to to just soak with me in this for a second. We all, we all, you and I, tidy churchgoers that we are, we were all in the crosshairs of God's wrath. Can I just say something to you that might seem a little bit strong, but it's actually biblical language. There is a very real sense in which God saw you as an enemy. He saw you with a holy, righteous hatred. We deserve to be in the crosshairs. God's verdict, which is the only verdict that matters, it was in. The evidence was absolutely immense. The sentence had been rendered. The soul that sins against God, it dies. And the execution of that sentence was not appealable. That was, that was the state we were in. And yet the Bible says God laid on one His obedient, righteous son, his innocent son, God laid on one the iniquity of us all. Paul says it in verse 21 this way. He says, God made him, made his son Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Do you see that? 
God made him who, to be sin who knew no sin. And, and there he is. There's the Son of God, the righteous one, hanging on the cross. And there's the Son, the sinner. There's Jesus, the sinner. There's Christ, the sinner. There's the real thief, murderer, adulterer. Jesus, the liar. Jesus, the dad screaming at his son. Jesus, the wife, mocking and gossiping about her husband. Jesus, the betraying friend. Jesus, the hater. Jesus, the malicious. Jesus, the envious. Jesus, the status seeker. Jesus, the lustful. Jesus, the porn user. Jesus, the the racist and the bigot. Jesus who seeks earthly treasure more than heavenly treasure. It's like all heaped on him. Not a single sin he committed. All of it heaped on him. God laid on him all the iniquity. One died for all. Now what does that mean? Paul says it means all have died. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means a couple of things. First of all, all have died. One died for all. All the sin heaped on him and he died for it. And that means all have died. That means, first of all, that the death sentence obviously has been already executed. I mean, you and I sit here today, and I don't know, you know, it's just so hard to sometimes connect to this because I don't really feel like I deserve a death sentence, honestly, most of the time. I mean, I know I'm a sinner, but it's just kind of hard to like, but it is, it is like immensely big news that I've already died. Like my death sentence was already executed upon Jesus. God's judgment was satisfied upon him. God's war bow has been relaxed because it spent all its arrows on Jesus the curse has been laid to rest. That's part of what it means. All have died. You've already died. Your, dead is, your, dead is, your death is dead. But it means more. All have died in the sense that our death sentence has already been executed, but it means more. It means that entire existence, that whole existence in which you and I were rebel traitors against God, we were under his wrath, that whole existence has passed away, beloved. That world, as Paul sometimes calls it, that state of affairs in which you and God were at war, that is over. That is crucified. That world and existence is buried in the tomb of Jesus. Paul will say in Galatians, I have been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. I'm dead to that whole way of life and that whole way of life, if it can even be called life, it's dead to me. God has buried that existence. All have died to that. Because now you're reconciled. Now you're loved. Now you're forgiven. Now you're accepted. Now you're welcome. Now you're friends. Now you're children. Now you are in Christ. And you're in his relationship to the Father. That's the reconciliation. Amen? Amen. Now think with me about, think more about now the result of the reconciliation. That's the reconciliation. But think about the result of the reconciliation. Because Paul says in verse 17, there's a therefore. And you've heard me say it many times. Not original with me. When you see a therefore, what's it there for? Paul says the reconciliation. One died for all. Therefore, all have died. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, man. This is the result of the reconciliation. New creation, an entirely new world. All of the fundamental realities here have changed. It's nothing like that old existence we remember before. All, everything's new here. Because in this new creation, we have awakened, 
This is all over the New Testament. We have, God has awakened us from that nightmare of sin and death and the reign of Satan, the destroyer who hates God and hates his creatures and hates especially his human image bearers. God has just awakened us from that whole nightmare into this glorious dawn of life now with God as our Father. That's, that's the new dawn. That's the new day. And God has brought us into a world now in which there is peace. The, 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 the biblical word shalom. It just means so much more than a cessation of hostilities. It means, it means all is well. There is peace between heaven and earth in this new world. There is joyous fellowship between God and man in this new world. And it's more than just an individual thing. We're now in a creation where Jesus reigns. That sin bearer, that savior, that lamb is Lord, right? He, he has been seated at the, the one who paid that price, the one, who, the one who died has been raised and seated at the Father's right hand. And, and the Bible says the gates of hell tremble before his gospel as it goes forth. Because they know that, that the powers of hell understand the earth now is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all it contains. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. And the Bible says all flesh will see the salvation of God. So in this new world that we are living in, and we really are, we do not fear death anymore. We do not fear the devil anymore, much as he prowls about as a roaring lion. We do not fear the raging of the nations because our God reigns. Our God reigns. And to that, the whole church You see this in Revelation. The whole church in heaven and on earth just simply responds to that good news. Our God and Savior reigns. They just say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent, he reigns. That's the new creation. And beloved, that's not just objective reality, though it surely is objective reality. That is new new psychological reality. Because it is in view of the fact that if anyone is in Christ, you're in a new creation, you're in a new world, a new set of fundamental realities. That's psychological reality for us because it means that we can say to ourselves, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you on Monday morning disquieted within me? Hope in God. I will praise him. You know this is not like Ben Miller's default, I hope. (laughs) at all. But that is psychological reality. In the new creation, if God reigns, why, why, are you, why are you downcast on my soul? And it is that reality, that new creation, to which we take our tired, afflicted, lonely, embattled hearts and minds like thirsty deer to the water brooks, and we just plunge our face into that, and we just drink to be revived in our soul. But it isn't just psychological reality. Paul says it's social reality. Look at verse 16. If anyone's in Christ, new creation, one has died died for all, therefore all died. So from now on, we don't know anybody according to the flesh. We don't know people according to the flesh for Paul. It's just that old world. It's It's humanity in sin under the curse of death, under the power of Satan. We don't know people according to that old world and its realities anymore. That's dead. How do we know people? Well, if anyone is in Christ, we see them now as the new creation that they are. 
And in fact, even those who are not in Christ, even those who are not yet worshipers of Jesus, what do we see? How do we know them? Well, we know them as those to whom God has now sent us with his message of reconciliation. Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. And so every single person that we meet in every one of our relationships, whether with those in Christ or not yet in Christ, the love of Christ controls us. When I'm dealing with those in Christ, I'm seeing new creation. That's how I know you. When I'm dealing with those outside of Christ, I'm seeing those to whom I'm sent with a message of reconciliation. And so it's the love of Christ that controls our social lives, not the pride and the envy and the lust and the bitterness and the malice and the hatred that we inherited from our father, Adam. That is no more. And to make this just very practical, it's how I look at you. When I'm thinking about you during the week, because they're interacting after worship, I'm looking at you. How do I see you? How do I know you? Well, I'm, I know this about you. You are not condemned. You're not condemned. God does not condemn you. You are not under the dominion of sin. Sin does not rule you. You are not a lost cause to God or to me. You're not a stranger to me. You're not an alien. You are a child of God, therefore my brother, my sister. Your identity is defined by the love of Christ, and so our relationship is defined by the love of Christ. The defaults from whatever source do not reign anymore. The love of Christ controls these relationships. That is why the body of Christ is and must be a society and social experience like no other. Defaults divide. In the body of Christ, the love of Christ controls all the defaults. The fundamental dynamic in our relating now is not our personalities, our backgrounds, our family, our culture, our race, or whatever it might be. What, the, the, the dynamic that rules in our relationships now is not our defaults anymore. It is God's reconciling love in Christ. It controls us. That's the result of the reconciliation. So there's the reconciliation and the result. But let me close by speaking for a moment about what Paul says here about our response to the reconciliation, our response to this reconciliation. Because you can see very clearly here, especially in verse 15, that this reconciliation and the, the new creation that it has created, it cannot be left in the realm of theory. You cannot tuck this in a neat little theological volume on the shelf of your mind and leave it there. God will not allow it to remain in the realm of theory because verse 15 says, this one, Jesus Christ, died for all in order that. You see, God has a plan. He's got a purpose here. He has an intent here. And his intent in giving this one to die for all is what? What does he say? His intent is that those who live now might not any longer live for themselves, but for him. And beloved, when God has an intent, when God has a purpose, it will be accomplished. It will be accomplished on the ground. But notice, and I just love this, notice that that settled purpose of God, he gave one for all so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for him. Notice that it does not come to us shouting at us, it does not come at us even as a command, it comes to us, verse 20, as an appeal. Verse 20, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you. This is almost embarrassing. As, it's as embarrassing as Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It is God, through Christ, through the Apostle Paul, 
through me, through one another, as it were almost getting down on his knees before you and saying, I implore you to respond to this. I implore you to respond to this. How? What are we? Well, first of all, just notice that, that posture, that mode. The love of Christ does not control us mechanically, robotically, by sheer force. God, Christ, the apostles, they are calling to us as living beings who have hearts that are drawn by love. He speaks to us as children. He speaks to us like a father taking his child's face in his hands. As a friend, God speaks to us and implores us. Well, what does he implore us to do? Do you notice what it says there in verse 20, verse 20, the very end of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ. The king is imploring you in love. First of all, be reconciled. Be reconciled. That just basically means this. It means, beloved, look at me. Own. Own your relationship to God that Jesus has opened for you. Own it. A few weeks ago, I noticed one of our young parents in church with three children, three young children, and the spouse couldn't make it that day. And I was so impressed, I texted this, this parent later, and I said, beast mode very impressed. They shot back a great one-liner. Sometimes you just have to own it. You just have to own it. You're a mom, you're a dad. You're not going to hear a word of the sermon, but you just got to own it. And that's what Paul says. He says, I am imploring you, God is imploring you, own it. Own it. See, beloved, I can say to you, you're reconciled. I'm saying it right now. You are reconciled. But things are really going to change in your life when you say, I'm reconciled. I can say to you, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus himself. But things are really going to change in your life when you say, I am not my own. I am not God's enemy. I am not a stranger. This is not my story that I'm writing, that I'm living in. I am not on the throne. I am not in charge. Thanks be to God. I am bought with a price. I am not my own. That's when things will really begin to change. And those kind of statements are not just some kind of Christianized positive thinking. That is saying what God says. It is speaking about yourself, what the living God himself says. It is actually acknowledging reality. Own it. Be reconciled. But the rubber of reconciliation, which is so very real, it really meets the road in the practices of righteousness, because I love this way this this text ends, and I'm going to close with this. Be reconciled, but there's one more thing. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is where reconciliation really gets onto the road. You are righteous in Christ. That's what the reconciliation means. Your sin was laid on him and the debt was canceled, and his righteousness was given to you. That is the reconciliation, which means you are righteous. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ. So live as the righteous ones you are. That's the second appeal. Not just be reconciled, be righteous. Put feet to your status as reconciled ones. Put feet to the new creation in Christ. What does that mean? A few thoughts, and then we'll be done. This is resurrection life. Be reconciled, be righteous. What's it mean to be righteous? It means, first of all, walk in obedience. 
Man, do we need to destigmatize that word obedience. Americans don't like obedience. Obedience, beloved, is glorious. Bowing your knee is glorious. Obedience is saying, I am going to study what God wants me to do, and I am going to do it by the power of his grace because he is God and I'm not, and he loves me more than I love myself. Amen? I'm going to obey him because he's God and he loves me more than I love myself. That's righteousness. I want his love to control me. I want his love to govern me from the inside out. Just walk in obedience. Be very cool (laughs) with walking in obedience. That is what it means to be righteous. It's more than that, though. Walk also in wisdom. Because obedience can make it seem as if all God has for you is rules. Most of what God has for you is wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Become an insatiable learner before the Lord. Just an insatiable learner. Learn in his word. What did God make you for? What did God make all things for? That's wisdom. Understanding the purpose of yourself and of all things. And then, you know, not just in the word, but out in the world. Learn in the world as you just look around. Pay attention. What leads to life? What leads to death? You'll see it if you look. The Father in Proverbs can say, just watch. Just watch people's lives. Watch the trajectory. Watch where they end up. That's wisdom. Learn from your experiences that God ordains for you, and especially your sufferings. You will suffer. Learn from those sufferings. What growth do I still need, and how do I grow? How do I actually grow? You learn that from experience, especially suffering. And walk with the wise. Learn what they've learned. Walk in wisdom. That's what it means to enact, to put into practice the righteousness God has given you in Christ. Walk in obedience, walk in wisdom, walk in gratitude. Righteousness is gratitude. Can I say something to you all? You are always and everywhere blessed. Some of you are not feeling it right now. The scripture says God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are phenomenally, eternally, superaboundingly blessed. And the truth is, it's way more than just the spiritual blessings. God has poured upon you a whole lot of other stuff. And righteousness is gratitude. The pagans end up turning away from God because knowing he is God, even from what he's revealed in nature, they will not glorify him as God or be thankful. But the scripture says, you want to know what the will of God in Christ Jesus is for you? In everything, give thanks. That's the will of God. Walk in obedience, wisdom, gratitude. Fourthly, walk in love. This is righteousness. Walk in love. Love fulfills the law of God. As I have loved you, love one another. This is what it means. It's very simple. God has given you time. He's given you abilities. He's given you resources. He wants you to give those to people who cannot obviously reward you. That's love. Take the time, abilities, and resources God has given you, and as Christ has given himself for you, just give those to people who cannot obviously reward you. Make your default question in life, not what do I want, but how can I serve? That's the default in Christ. Not what do I want, how can I serve? That's the mind of Christ. And finally, be righteous, Walk in peace and joy. Because the love of Christ can actually change even the very deepest defaults of your emotional life. You know, the feelings feel like the stuff that won't ever change. I can change my behavior, but changing how I feel, Christ can change even how you feel. Because the love of Christ can empower you to live, as Paul says earlier in this book, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed 
but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit are part of the righteousness of the saints. So, beloved, be reconciled and be righteous. And that's where I'm going to end. That is the power of Easter. That is the new creation on the ground. That is why all the defaults change. Christ has risen and nothing, nothing will ever be the same again. Amen. Make it so. Our great God, in Jesus we pray.